So we're going to pick up in chapter 27. Mike was talking about. Now, so far the Israelites have made their way all the way to the Jordan River. Man, it's so exciting. They've been at the Jordan before. I mean, really close, going in the promised land. They just didn't. So 40 laps around the desert they went. Well, it's been all the way through Numbers, their journey back to the Jordan River, right? Back to get to this place where they can go into the promised land, receive the, the promised land, the, the gift that God gave them, the promise that he made them way back in the day to Abraham. They were so excited. But as you saw last week, they get right up to that point and almost utter disaster takes them over. The Midianites trying to deceive them, kind of tempted them with idolatry and some sexual stuff going on as well. And almost the whole of Israel turned away from the Lord to pursue this. If not for the, the courage of Phineas and the Levites and other people in, the, in, in Israel to stand up against that lie, that, that deception, that evil, all of Israel would have been wiped out. Or they would have had 40 more laps around the desert as they licked their wounds and tried to figure it out again amazingly, God allowed and gave Israel some strong people that didn't want to go back through the desert experience, that wanted to receive his promises, that knew what they were looking at was evil, and they stood up against it. Praise be to God for those courageous people, and God honored that, and he spared Israel. And so here they are, ready to go into the Jordan, and God's just got some last-minute housekeeping things that he wants to accomplish, right, before they go in. So one of the first housekeeping things that, that at the entrance of the tent meeting and said, our father died in the wilderness, but he was not among the company of those who gathered themselves together against the Lord in the company of Korah, but died for his own sin. See, God held all of the, the males, right, of, of that generation before them complicit. He held it against them that they didn't go into the promised land, that unlike this last time, there was not a man to be found other than Caleb and Joseph that would lead them, Joshua, I'm sorry, that would lead them into the promised land, that could convince the people to go with them. And so because of that failure, God convicted them all to 40 laps around the desert he convicted them all that not one of them would see entrance into the promised land except for Joshua and except for Caleb, the two that had been faithful to him. Even Moses and Aaron, who had been faithful, tripped up in that 40-year experience and they lost their right to enter into the promised land. So anyway, they were saying, Dad wasn't like that, but he messed up and he had to pay for his own sin. And he had no sons. Why should the name of our father be taken away from his clan because he had no son? Give to us a possession among our father's brothers. Their whole point, their whole case before Moses and before the Lord was this. You're giving us an inheritance. I mean, we haven't received it yet, but you're giving us an inheritance. If dad didn't have any boys, which I know is the normal way, you give it to the eldest boy, he gets the inheritance and it keeps it in the family. But if he doesn't have any boys, must we lose our inheritance forever because of that? And so that's the question they were bringing forward before the Lord. In verse 5, Moses said, brought their case before the Lord, and the Lord said to Moses, the daughters of Zelophet are right. You shall give them possession of an inheritance among their father's brothers and transfer the inheritance of their father to them. And you shall speak to the people of Israel, saying, If a man dies and has no son, then he shall transfer his inheritance to his daughter. And if he has no daughter, then he shall give his inheritance to his brothers. And if he has no brothers, then he shall give his inheritance to his father's brothers. And if he, his father has no brothers, then he shall give his inheritance to the nearest kinsman of the clan, and he shall possess it. 
And it shall be for the people of Israel a statute and a rule as the Lord commanded Moses. Moses was just kind of, or Moses was dictating this from the Lord, and the Lord was basically saying, you know, you gals are right. I don't want anybody to lose their inheritance. This is my promise to you. This is my gift to you as your, uh, and to your whole family. This is a sign between us that I am faithful to you. I don't ever want you to lose it. And so absolutely, let's do it the way that you talked about. Let's make sure that it stays in the family. And later on at the very end of Numbers, it will go on and say, but this is what I want you to do, gals. I'm going to limit your husbandry just a little bit here. As you look for a guy uh, whom you desire to marry, he's got to be of the same clan, of the same tribe of Israel. Because I don't want you marrying a Simeonite because then the Simeons would, Simeonites would gain control of that land and I don't want that land to be lost to your tribe I also don't want it to be lost to your clan and to the people of Israel when you have seen it you shall also be gathered to your people as your brother Aaron was in other words go up and take a good look because you're not going in and the closer they got and now they're sitting at the Jordan Moses knows he's not going in he's petitioned the Lord over and over and over and over on this subject and finally the Lord says stop talking to me about it your fate has been sealed. But out of mercy, God lets him go up on this mountain and get a gander, right? Get a look at this incredible land that he's going to give him. But he continues on and says, And as your brother, as you and your brother Aaron was, because you rebelled against my word in the wilderness of Zen, when the congregation quarreled, failing to uphold me as holy at the waters before their eyes. These are the waters of Meribah at Kadesh in the wilderness of Zen. You need to understand, God always does things ultimately for our good, right? And, and sometimes you read through this and you say, oh, but Moses has been so faithful and he just messed up the one time. God, why, why would you take this away? And he did it so that the people would learn to glorify God always, that they would learn never to take him for granted. They would learn to worship him all the days of their life, that God hates the sin stuff right? All that's valuable stuff is they're going in because you're going to see they're going to struggle with all of that. They're going to want to put God in their back pocket. They're going to want to kind of do their own thing and kind of use God like the other people use their idols and kind of manipulate God into doing their thing. They're going to forget how powerful God is. They're going to forget how good, the, the good that God has for them. They're going to forget all of it. And so God continues to try to teach them as they're walking through this wilderness and he's still got a little bit left. I need you to understand, I am holy. I am the holy God of the universe. I demand that you follow me for your own good. I demand this. When you rebel against me, it's called sin, and it needs to be repented of. And if you come to me, I'll forgive it. Isn't that crazy? God isn't going to hold it against you forever. You just got to go and you got to say, I'm sorry, and God completely forgives you of all your sin. And he sets that up in the sacrifices, and you'll see it in a little bit. He'll set that up in the offerings. This continual relationship and reconciliation and forgiveness process, the people can always be right before him. 
But Moses is a little concerned, as any one of us would be if we're leading the people. Sometimes I I ask people, man, if God took you today, would you be excited? And my answer is always, absolutely, take me now, Lord. I'd love to go to heaven. That just sounds amazing. But a lot of people I talk to are like, I don't know. I don't know what would happen to my family. You know, I'm worried about my wife, about my kids. I feel like I need to be here. And my answer is always, you know, if it's my time to go, then God's already got a plan for all that. So I'm not going to worry about it because God's already got a better plan that I could come up with. But they're worried about it. And that's what Moses is worrying about. He's the leader of the nation of Israel. He's been prophet, priest, and king. I mean, he's been uh, utilizing a lot of hats for the people of Israel. What's going to happen to them if I'm gone? Putting a little bit too much emphasis on himself, a little bit. But he says, Lord, let, let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation. Verse 17, it says, Who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as a sheep and have no shepherd. So the Lord said to Moses, Okay, take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit. Remember when he was one of the 70 elders that the Lord put the Spirit of the Lord upon? And lay your hand upon him. Make him stand before Eleazar the priest and all the congregation, and you shall commission him in their sight. You shall invest him with some of your authority that all the congregation of the people of Israel may obey. And he shall stand before Eleazar the priest who shall inquire of him by the judgment of the Urim before the Lord. One of the things I love about this whole section, I mean, you just imagine being the people of Israel and all the stuff that you've gone through. And Moses is now gone, and he's kind of been your connection. But one of the things I love about Moses and I love about the way God sets it up after this is people can always go to the God of the universe and find his direction. Right? They don't have to wonder if, if somebody's cheating who or if they're doing it for nefarious means or they don't have to wonder about the wisdom of it or the righteousness of it. They just know God's giving them t- this, this, this direction to them. And so God's saying yes to the gals of Zelophet. He's saying, you know what, Moses, you're right. Let, let me set up a guy in your absence so that he can continue to lead these people. But you know always that God's wisdom is right, that it's correct. And so it's amazing. And, and the people received it as such. And it's amazing in this world today, even though we have God's word and we have his wisdom over and over and over, built through the pages of scripture, (sighs) so often we just totally discount it. And we make our wisdom more important than God's wisdom. We make our ways more righteous than the things that God would declare righteous. We kind of rewrite scripture to make God kind of a version of himself, one that better kind of melds with what we want our God to be because ultimately we want to be God. And that's if we don't out and out reject him as a culture, which seems like we have in many ways. But God's wisdom is always true. It's always right. And I love that. And then he goes on. Remember I said that Moses was serving a lot of different hats, prophet, priest, and king. Kind of a a prefiguring of Christ who would serve in the same capacity, right, for all of time. But as God was, was delineating the leadership after Moses, he was given different parts to different people. Already he had given the priesthood to Eleazar. Notice again and again, Moses goes to Eleazar, right, to find counsel from the Lord. Now he was going to give the kingship piece to Joshua. The prophet piece he didn't really give to anybody except the Urim and Thummim, right, which God had given to the priest to seek counsel, to seek wisdom, to seek direction from the Lord. And they would go through that and through a process of casting lots or whatever, they would discover the will of God. And so he's delineated in different pieces. And so they brought him before Eleazar, who was the priest, who was to confirm Joshua as king. And then Joshua came and they confirmed him as king. 
before all the people so there'd be no question who was to come after him. Can you imagine if he hadn't done this? Remember Korah? Remember all the rebellions? Remember all the people who wanted to be in charge? Remember all those different people? It would have been a madhouse. So God lifts up Joshua and says, follow him. And in verse 22, he continues, at this Word they shall go out, and at his word they shall come in, both he and all the people of Israel with him, and the whole congregation. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him, and he took Joshua and made him stand before Eleazar the priest and the whole congregation, and he laid his hands on him and commissioned him as the Lord directed Moses. Then God goes on in chapter 28 and into 29 and gives a whole series of offerings that he wants them to make. The first set of offerings are the daily offerings, chapter 28, 1 through 8. And the whole point of this was really to remind Israel of this, to remind them that death was necessary to atone for sin and that there, were no, there was no forgiveness without death. Seems like a pretty gruesome thing, right? But that's what sacrifice was. It was the slaying of the animal through whose blood, right, you're giving before God. That would atone for your sin, now, do you think anybody in Israel after a sacrifice was thinking, oh, do you think God really cares about this sin stuff? I mean, you think he's really serious about it? Yeah, I just had to give up my little lamb to, to be forgiven. Of course he cares about the sin stuff. He made this lamb die to, so that he would take that in substitute for me. I've been redeemed by the price of this lamb. I, of course he takes it seriously. Of course he hates sin. And it was a continual reminder to the people of Israel that they lived in a state of sin before the Lord and they needed his constant forgiveness, his constant reconciliation to be right before them. And every time they would rebel, what happened? Because God loved me, disciplined his kids, didn't he? Sometimes like with a sledgehammer to get their attention. And he does something similar to us at times. In fact, I, I keep telling the, the Wednesday morning Bible class, I say, if God's screaming at you because of your sin, I said, turn now before he has to get involved, right? Because if you don't turn by yourself because God loves you, he'll help you turn. And it's, more, it's a more complete way of turning, right? It's more embarrassing, it's harder, it's more difficult because of the consequences that he brings upon your life. And he does so to save you from your sin, to save you from destruction because he loves you just like the people of Israel. So he goes on and he gives them the daily sacrifices and says, I need you to remember, as you're going into the promised land, right? Moses isn't here anymore to remind you all the time. You need to keep doing this to remind yourself of your relationship with God. Then in verse 9, he talks about the Sabbath offerings. I need you to remember, and the whole point of these is to remember that I will provide for you, just like I did with the manna. Did you get the manna, by the way? They should. It's been 40 years. God provided a double portion on the, on the day before the Sabbath so that it would last for two days. That was the only day he did that. Something weird in the nature of things that would cause that by itself. So God says, it doesn't happen by itself. I'm doing this on purpose to show you that I will provide daily for you. I don't want you to worry in the days ahead. I don't want you to pretend it's all on you. I will take care of you. I will provide. Then the monthly offerings... To be reminded that God has been with them and God will be with them in the future. Over and over and over it goes. And as you read through the pages, this talks about uh, some of the specifics of the offering and what's necessary. In verse 16, it picks up and talks about the Passover offering. It says, I need you to remember what I did for you in Egypt. I don't ever want you to forget. I love this song, I have been redeemed. That's what happened in Egypt, right? I redeemed you from the Egyptians and I made you pay a price to get your sons back, right? 
He said, I love you so much, I was willing to do anything for you. I freed you to make you my own people. I'm giving you the promise. I'm answering and giving you every promise that I've ever made. Stay with me. Trust me. I've got you. I will never let you go. Be faithful, and I will continue to be faithful to you. Then he goes and talks about in, verse, in chapter uh, 20, verse 26, about the offerings of the Feast of Weeks, and then chapter 29, the offerings of the Feast of Trumpets. Both of those were to signify times of first fruits and thanksgiving, to recognize that God is the giver of all good things. I know, I guess we pretend we make all our money and we deserve all our money and you hear the words deserve from people and you cringe. These are all gifts from God. He bestows upon us, I think in America, mostly lavishly in ways that we can't even comprehend, you know? And, and so we rejoice and we lay in one that's set free into the desert to essentially be destroyed. There's <laughs> a prefiguring of Christ who was the perfect scapegoat, right? He was sent into the wilderness with all the sins of the world upon him to suffer and to die for our sins as a substitute for us. But he says, I, I want you to do this in a very specific way so that you can bring all your sins before me so that I can forgive all your sins. Don't hold anything back. I don't want there to ever to be anything between us. If you're married, think about your relationship with your spouse. It's not good if there's something between you, right? It's just one of those little burrs that keeps coming up in every argument and every discussion, and, and you don't really get past it until you get past it. You have to deal with the issue so that you can be at peace with each other again. It's kind of the same thing with sin with God, right? We need to unburden ourselves. We need to be forgiven. We need to experience the freedom that he talks about. We need to stop beating ourselves up. And that's all through a process of bringing to him our stuff. You know, when you think about sin, most of us, if we can just take a step back, get how much it is damaging our life. Sin always has negative consequences. Most of us recognize that we're our own worst enemy when it comes to life and how we experience it. We bring more problems on ourselves than anybody else does. We say more dumb things that complicate our life than anybody else does to complicate our life. We are our own worst enemy. And if we can take a step back, most of the time we can look at those things and say it's because of sin. Shouldn't have said that. Shouldn't have done that. God, I'm so sorry I pursued this course. I'm so sorry my selfishness got in the way. My pride, my arrogance. God, forgive me. And then there's the Feast of Booths, again, following the Day of Atonement. That's, again, one of Thanksgiving. But if you understand the whole Feast of Booths about, it's also about giving hope, right? I was with you in the wilderness. I will continue to be with you in the future. You don't ever have to doubt my love for you. And then he goes on in another housekeeping piece in chapter 30, talking about vows. And he talks about some instances where gals, if they make vows as a young person or they just married and their father hears about it if they're a young gal, if their husband hears about it and they're just married, those guys, because of the spiritual head of the household, right, they can eliminate those vows if they address it early on, if they address it when they first hear it. If they don't, the vows stay in place. But the overall thing that God's is bringing up here is simply this. When you vow to do something to me, do it. Or there will be consequence. That seems like a crazy thing. I mean, vows, you don't have to make a promise to God, but it is a promise to God. How, do you, how often do you like it when people make promises to you and they don't come through? We, we hate it. We don't like that at all. Why did you lie to me? We would say, God's the same way. Don't vow to do something and not do it or there will be consequence. It's a teaching all the way through Scripture. So seriously did they take this, right? 
that there's an instance that one guy, he vowed, I will sacrifice the first thing that comes out of my house, you know, if I return from victory. <laughs> that we know when people are telling us the truth because we, you know, we were either there or we know what happened and we can tell the truth from error. But God says, when it comes to me, I need you to follow through always. Jesus in the New Testament expands on the vow, says, you know, it's not just vows to me. I want you to get to a point where your yes is just yes and your no is just no. And you always keep those as such so that you are known for your integrity. And through that integrity, you glorify me because you are a person of truth, a person of your word. I was thinking about vows that we make in our world today. We, we certainly still make vows when we get married, don't we? I mean, we stand before the Lord, and we, I don't know if you ever thought about this, we make a vow to God first that we will love this person, be faithful to this person, and basically keep trying with this person through the course of our entire life. In our world today, I guess we don't take that vow super seriously, but God still does. As evidence, do you ever notice the huge amount of negative consequences that come upon people when they get divorced? If you've ever been through a divorce, you'd say amen to that because you know the difficulty and the pain. It's horrible. It's, it's nothing like you ever imagined when you started down that course. I can't tell you the number of people I've talked to afterwards that says, even if they're happily married to somebody else, you know, my one regret is I didn't try harder in my first marriage, Right? If I had known what I know now, I'd just lament not trying harder. You've made a vow to God before you even consider the person that's making your life difficult at the moment, right? You made a vow to God, I'm going to keep trying. Why do people get divorced? Two selfish people just give up. Or usually one does. They just stop trying at some point. And God says, I don't okay that. That is not a spirit from me. That is a spirit from the evil one. You are breaking your promise to me first. And there is consequence to that. Then I was thinking, I don't know if they even do it anymore, but when you go to court, sometimes they make you put the, your hand on the Bible, especially if you're a witness, right? And they put your hand on the Bible and they take an oath on the Bible saying, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. That was just part and parcel of our judicial system for a long time. Why? Because we lived in a Christocentric nation for the most part, and people took the vows that they would make to God seriously. It was, it was calling on a higher power, essentially, in those judicial settings to make sure that people actually told the truth because they feared God, and they loved him, and they wanted to honor them with their lives. The whole section is essentially a reminder. Be people of truth. Be people who do what you say you're going to do. And then in chapter 31, it's the bigger thing on the to-do list, but he spoke to Moses saying, avenge the people of Israel on the Midianites. Afterward, you shall be gathered to your people. So Moses spoke to the people saying, arm men from among you for the war that they may go against the Midianites to execute the Lord's vengeance on Midian. Remember, Midian was the one that had gotten Balaam involved, right? And Balaam, if you follow last week, right, he was the one that was going to issue a curse against Israel, but God kept intervening and wouldn't allow him to do so. Well, apparently, I mean, he should have learned at that point, right? But apparently he wanted to get paid still. And so he took what he knew about God and he said, hey, guys, if you tempt these guys away from the Lord, if you get them to commit idolatry with your God, God will punish them himself. You won't even have to be involved. 
You just got to send your ladies out there to be an enticement, to get them to stumble, to get them to fall. And so he says you should send a thousand of them, each of the tribes of Israel, to war. So there were provided out of the thousands of Israel, a thousand from each tribe, 12,000 armed for war. Remember, they had some 600,000 warriors, right, at this time. <laughs> he says, just give me 12, to fight an entire nation, of which we know they had at minimum five strong and in, 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 in prosperous cities. Then they had the rest of the nation. 12,000 armed for war. And Moses sent them to war, a thousand from each tribe, together with Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, with the vessels of the sanctuary and the trumpets for the alarm in his hand. Moses sent 12,000 guys out against a vastly superior army. Do you think? Sometimes you read through Scripture and you come across these things, and you're like, oh, man, why did they kill them all? Like, couldn't they just take them captive? I mean, that would be more merciful. And when you start asking those questions, it's because you haven't read the earlier in the book where God says, I am giving the people in this Canaanite region over to you to punish, to destroy because of their sin. He even talks about it kind of like a cup. The sin of this cup has overflown and any time a cup overflows before the Lord, he brings down his judgment upon that place throughout history. And he uses different nations to accomplish that through the course of history. You see that in the Old Testament. I'm sure it's true in the New as well. But anyway, the people that lived in Canaan had so defied God, so rebelled against him, so gone their own way. They set up idols. They did every vile thing that you can imagine. And God just finally said, Enough. And whether he was going to use Israel or some other nation to destroy them, it was going to happen. But to honor his promise, to give the nation of Israel the promised land, he says, you will be the vehicle of my destruction. So it was actually ridding the earth of evil. It puts it in a different context, doesn't it? How many of you guys would like your neighborhood to be rid from evil? I love that. I think that would be great. I could walk around, not worry about anything. Find the saints around he calls upon them judgment. And so when he was calling them to utterly destroy the Midianites for their evil, he was asking them to destroy the evil from amidst that, that area. And so he goes on and says, And the people of Israel took captive the women of Midian and their little ones, and they took as plunder all their cattle and their flocks and all their goods and all their cities and the places where they lived and all the encampments they burned with fire and took all the spoils and all the plunder, both of man and of beast, then they brought the captives and the plunder and the spoil to Moses and to Eleazar the priest and to the congregation of the people of Israel at the camp on the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho. And Moses and Eleazar the priest and all the chiefs of the congregations advised caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And so the plague came upon all the congregation of the Lord. Now therefore kill every male among the little ones and kill every woman who has known a man by lying with them. But all the young girls who have not known a man by lying with them keep alive for yourselves. So Moses comes out. He said, guys, did you forget? I mean, I'm sure they just, you, you didn't kill the women and children. Those are the ones that you spared, you know. It, you took his trophies for wives or, or servants or whatever it was. I mean, but Moses comes out, is it, did you forget this was about evil? It's, it's not about conquering just the nation. God told us to destroy the evil from amongst us. Did, did you forget it was the gals that was leading everybody in tempta into temptation? 
Did, did you forget that little kernel? Do you think that they wouldn't do the same if you brought them into your homes? Do you think that it wouldn't influence the rest of the people in Israel to pursue sin? Do you really want God's judgment upon the people? And They had seen God's judgment over and over again. Nobody in Israel said, does God care about the sin stuff? Because God punished the sin stuff. People died. I mean, it was a big deal. Nobody questioned that. Why are you trying to destroy us, in other words? These were real terms. God got angry. God was going to teach the people of Israel to follow him one way or the other. And they saw these guys bringing in the gals that had tried to deceive all of Israel. And they started freaking out, almost like, why are you trying to destroy us? What are you doing? So Moses had them kill all the boys so they wouldn't grow up to be a burr in the side of Israel. He had them destroy all the women who had slept with somebody, assuming that they were part of the, uh, the deceit, right? And then the younger girls who had not, they assumed that they had not part of that. And so they, and so they were spared. Then Eleazar the priest said to the men in the army who had gone to battle, this is a stat, I missed a part, uh, verse 18, uh, 19. And camp outside the camp seven days. Whoever of you has killed any person and whoever has touched any slain, purify yourselves and your captives on the third day and on the seventh day. You shall purify every garment and every article of skin, all work of goat's hair and every article of wood. The reason this is significant is, again, remember that God wants to holy camp. He talked about being defiled, right? If, if somebody in your family died and you went to the funeral, you, you had to go outside camp for seven days to be purified from that. It was no different for the people that went to war. They didn't get an exception. They did an honorable thing. They followed the Lord's dictates. They did what he asked them to do, but they still needed to purify themselves before returning to camp to make God, to, serve, uh, to treat God as the holy God, right, that he asked them to treat them as. Okay, so then he goes on, and again, these are a lot of the kind of things. And so they go and they destroy the Midianites. They're coming back. They sequestered themselves for seven days. And then Moses is talking about all the plunder that they got. And he says, take the count of the plunder that was taken, both for man and of beast. You and Eleazar the priests and the heads of the father's houses of the congregations and divide the plunder into two parts between the warriors that went out to battle and the congregation. And this was to be a, a norm moving forward. The people of Israel would get half and the warriors would get half. Okay, out of that half. And the levy of the Lord's, uh, for the Lord, a tribute from the men of war, so the guys who went to battle, who went out to battle, one out of 500 of the, of the people and of the oxen and of the donkeys and of the flocks. And so, in other words, one out of 500 of all the, the plunder that you've, that you've received, I want you to give to the priests and take care of them. And then he tells and he talks about the other half that, um, that was the congregation's piece. And they said, give one out of 50 right, to the people of Israel, or I'm sorry, to the Levites, and take care of the Levites in your different cities, and then you guys can have the rest. And then he goes on, and he talks about the plunder and how much they got, and it was a significant sum. You get the sense that it significantly increased their holdings as a result of conquering the Midianites, which is just they weren't a weak nation. They were a pretty powerful nation to have accumulated this wealth. Verse 48, we pick up, Then the officers who were over the thousands of the army, the commanders of thousands and the commanders of hundreds, came near to Moses and said to Moses, Your servants have counted all the men of war who are under our command, and there is not a man missing from us. And we have brought the Lord's offering, what each man found, articles of gold, amulets and bracelets, signet rings, earrings and beads, to make atonement for ourselves before the Lord. I want you to get the significance of this. 
Moses sent 12,000 guys out to face the superior army. Not only did they win, right, totally decimate them, they get back and not one person's died. Why is this a significant happening right before they go into the promised land? What tripped them up last time? They'd heard how powerful the nations in the promised land were, how there were giants there, how there's no way we could win. These guys already showing more boldness and more faith than their parents did. They're at the banks of the Jordan ready to go in. They want to go in. So right before they go in, God gives them this gift. He says, it's not about you. It's about me. If with 12,000 guys you can take this entire nation over and lose nobody, it's got to share with you that I'm with you, that there's nothing that you can't achieve with me. Trust me, and everything I've promised will be yours. Trust me. And that's the big thing in being a disciple, isn't it? God just cries out to us again and again and again, trust me, I've got you. Trust me, I am working all things for your good. Trust me, I am with you. Trust me, when I ask you to do something, it's for your benefit, for your, for your good in life, to uncomplicate your life, to give you perspective in life, to give you a better existence in life. Trust me, God continues to call out. I love you. And I continue to work what is good in your life. And so he gives them this amazing teaching lesson saying, I've got you just before they go in. And we'll kind of end there in chapter 32. There's, a, there's another huge happening that um, while okayed by the Lord, or at least okayed by Moses, it serves as a huge complication for Israel moving forward for their history. Um, and we'll talk about that next week.